If you want to go ahead and take your seats, uh, we have a guest preaching uh, this evening, so I could take a, a week off because I'm moving. Uh, we have Pastor Mike Mounts from Harrison Free Will Baptist Church. He is a great, great friend uh, of, of mine and an encouragement in the ministry. Uh, I say all the time, like, I know that there is at least one man in my hometown of Menford preaching the gospel on a regular basis, and it is Pastor Mike. Um, and yes, I saw, once again, he's preached here before, but I saw some eyebrows go up and ask me, is he a free will Baptist? And the answer is, yes, uh, he is. But if I could say this just by way of commendation uh, for my brother, if there were no Reformed churches to go to in this area, I would join Harrison Free Will Baptist Church in a heartbeat without any qualms. This brother is an expositor. He loves the Lord. He loves the text. And he's going to teach us from the text this evening. And I'm really excited. So pay attention and show him all the respect and hopefully more than you would show me. Um, so Pastor Mike, please come on up. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I just cannot get get over uh, the way that David introduces me, even the second time. <laughs> uh, it's nice. It's just great to be with you tonight. And uh, David, thank you again for the invitation. Uh, I never take uh, preaching God's word for granted. And I pray that I will never will. Um, I am truly honored and yet humbled, uh, not just the opportunity to preach here, although I am honored and humbled, but, but again, anytime we open the word of God, um, it's only by his grace that uh, He calls men like me to preach his word, and uh, I'm totally and completely undeserving of anything that the Lord would, would provide and offer. Uh, but that's why we're here tonight, because of his grace. That's why we're here this evening, and it's only by his grace. I would like for us to look at a passage tonight from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And I'm sure that most of you, if you've been, you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, you're familiar with this particular passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6. And let me just say, and I, I hope I'm not getting a, ahead of myself, but uh, God's Word is, is truly that. It, it is not just simply God's written Word. It is God's Word written. God is revealing himself to us from Genesis to Revelation. And, and what a gracious privilege to, to learn more about, about our God and to learn from him. And, and as we do, that, that we, we again, 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 perhaps getting ahead of myself, we begin to see ourselves as we really are. And uh, we see the need of a Savior. And uh, thankful for God's word. But there, 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 to me, and I'm speaking personally, to me there, there seems to be a, a few passages in the scripture to where we can say beyond the shadow of a doubt when we open up a particular passage, we are certainly on holy ground. One of them is Isaiah 6. Let me just say right off the bat, this passage 
far, far exceeds me in every way. And just pray that I will be able to, to give it some sort of justice this evening. But what's interesting, again, this is my opinion, uh, the other chapter in the Bible, Isaiah 6, we're certainly on holy ground, but the other chapter is in the same book, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And tonight we're going to look primarily at Isaiah chapter 6, but make reference to Isaiah 53 as well. Let's look at the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 through 9, okay? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. How you and I view God greatly impacts how we worship God. Therefore, how we view God and how we worship God must solely be based on the word of God. Everything else comes up short be it traditions, feelings, imaginations, experiences, or opinions. And if we fail to receive God's written revelation of himself, we will conceive a God, little g-o-d, of our own imaginations, and we will become guilty of idolatry. Wanting a God that we can see, a God that we can touch, a God that we can control. In his book, Be Encouraged, Warren Wiersbe quotes a particular Bible scholar. Today, Warren Wiersbe is at home with the Lord, but he still speaks through the books that he has written. He quotes this particular Bible scholar. He wrote, every year makes me tremble at the daring with which people speak of spiritual things. Wiersbe goes on to say, too often there is a sad absence of reverence in public meetings of the church so that it is no surprise that so many are not taking the things of God seriously. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean when it comes to this matter of, of taking the things of God seriously, that doesn't mean that worship is meant to be cold. It's not meant to be rigid. It's not meant to be formal. 
Worship is not meant to be lifeless without any feeling or emotions whatsoever. But real acceptable worship is not something that we can turn on and off like a light switch. For the child of God, worship is to be a lifestyle, 24-7, 365. Lord's Day worship should be the overflow of our personal and private worship the week before. Lord's Day worship should be the opening to our worship the week to follow. I'm sure that you all know and perhaps have recited the following phrase. But even if we know this particular phrase, it's something we in the church across America needs to be reminded of and truly take to heart. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's time the church, especially across America, the church began once again to take God seriously. It's time for the church to repent, to refocus, and to renew its high and holy view of God. It's time we once again trembled on the authority of God's word and humbled ourselves as we are confronted by God's holiness and were convicted of our sinfulness. It's beyond me, and I'm speaking as a pastor now, not your pastor, but it really, really concerns me, and it's beyond me how we can hear God's powerful, inspired, and authoritative word read, taught, and preached. But we can leave the service still talking about the things that we always talk about and doing the same things that we always do with little or no change whatsoever in our hearts and in our lives. We go back to business as usual when we say amen. I don't know what it, what it will take for the church across America but what does it take for God to truly arrest our attention? What does it take to get us to honestly and humbly respond to holy God? I pastored in Westerville when 9-11 took place. And after 9-11 took place, for probably a week or two, I saw people I hadn't seen for a while. In fact, I saw people I didn't even know because folks were coming to, to the church. But after two weeks, I'm serious, after two weeks, it was back to business as usual. COVID has taken place. And I was anticipating that if anything will bring the church to its knees, perhaps it will be this pandemic. But I haven't personally, I haven't seen a change or transition. In fact, I talk to pastors occasionally and I hear the same thing, that not seeing much of a change, not seeing much of a transition whatsoever in the church. My question is, what will it take for the church in America to really, really knuckle down and 
begin to take the things of God seriously. Whether we realize it or not, our view of God affects all that we do. It affects our jobs, our families, our finances, our ministries. It affects our relationships. How we view God impacts our decisions. Whether or not we view worship as a lifestyle and all of life as a stewardship. And the truth is, real revival touches all of these and so much more. And the reason that I mention this matter of revival, that everything that I have read regarding revival, biblically or historically, revival, true revival, has always come as a result of first seeing God and His holiness as revealed in scriptures. Just as Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. So tonight let's take a look at Isaiah's view of God. Discover what will happen when we truly encounter holy God through and from the pages of his word. First of all, and we've already read the passage, I'll not reread these. At least I don't think I will, but First of all, when we truly encounter holy God from and through the pages of his word, first of all, we'll see things we've never seen before. We see that in verses 1 and 2. We'll see things that we've never seen before. Again, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up on the throne. Verse 1, when we look at verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So in the passage, in the context, verse 1 reminds us of a stark contrast between King Uzziah's proud and presumptuous approach to God and Isaiah's humble and unassuming approach to God. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we read these words concerning King Uzziah. In 2 Chronicles 26 verse 5, As long as he sought the Lord, that is King Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But just a few verses down, we read these words. For he was marvelously helped till he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. We see a stark contrast between King Uzziah's view of God and Isaiah's view of God. Isaiah was reminded that although there was unrest and confusion in Judah's throne, heaven's throne was still intact. God was still sovereign. God was still in charge. He wrote in verse 1, I saw the Lord. The King James says it this way, I saw also the Lord. The name Lord, the title Lord, or Adonai, appears approximately 50 times in the book of Isaiah. And the name Lord or title implies Lord of all. 
It means that he is sovereign. He is absolute ruler of all. He is sovereign. He is absolute owner of everything. He is master. He is supreme. He is controller. He is ruler over everything. He is Lord. He is Adonai. Has he ever become your Savior and your Lord? I trust that he has. He is both Savior and Lord. Is he Lord of your family? I trust that he is. Is he Lord of your finances? Is he Lord of your future plans? We have a lot of young adults here, and that's great. Is he Lord of your future plans? Is he Lord of all? Because that's what the title Lord implies. Lord of all. As you look at the passage in verse 1, Isaiah said that the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. In ancient times, the longer the robe, the greater the authority. The longer the robe, the greater the authority. I like what Kyle and Daly write concerning this. They write, Isaiah saw this all-filling robe of the indescribable one. As far as the eye could look at first, the floor was covered by this flowing robe. Consequently, there was no room for anyone to stand. You look at verses 1, 3, and 4. Note the number of times the word full or filled is used in these verses. And this, this word full or filled describes the magnitude, the majesty of God's glory. Again, this was holy ground. There was no place at all for Isaiah to stand because of this all-flowing robe of the Lord on the throne. There was no room for Isaiah. There was no room for anyone to stand. This is holy ground. Remember Exodus chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 5. The Lord told both Moses and Joshua, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. You see, you don't come into the presence of God flippantly. You don't come into the presence of God casually or arrogantly. After all, sinful man, holy God. And then we discover in this passage again, we'll see things we've never seen before. There are these seraphim. These seraphim are, are, are created, but yet they're unfallen and yet unredeemed creatures. And they're, they're recognizing and they're, they're reverencing holy God. They are sustained by two wings. They're ready to serve. They covered their faces with two wings in, um, in humble awe 
of God's glory. They covered their feet with two wings, conscious, conscious of the fact that they are in the presence of the holiest one of all. When you look at these seraphim, their posture is one of humble worship and adoration before God. There is a keen sense of awe and reverence in his presence. Not only will we see things that we've never seen before, but in verses 3 and 4, we'll hear things that we've never heard before. I'm not sure in verse 3, it says that, they, that one cried to another and said, I, I, I somewhat, this is my personal opinion, perhaps, perhaps they sang this, because many times we'll, we'll discover that angels are singing. Let me just use my sanctified imagination here for a moment if I can. Perhaps the seraphim formed two opposite choirs. And they formed this, these choirs in a semicircle and, and in antiphonal voice they worshipped the most holy God. Perhaps one group began with holy, holy, holy. And the second group spoke as well and sang as well, holy, holy, holy. Perhaps one group began, holy, 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 and then the other group responded, the whole earth is full of his glory. What song, what praise, what worship, what adoration from created, unfallen, and unredeemed Creatures. Holy, 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 obviously, may be a reference to the triune God, or it may also be a reference to emphasize God's holiness. The holiness of God is the focus and the theme of the heavenly creatures that we read about in the book of Revelation. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. What's interesting in this passage in Revelation 4, 8, and 9, the phrase holy, holy, holy in one particular manuscript or in, in, in one particular manuscript, the word holy is found nine times. Could it be? Holy, holy, holy is the Father. Holy, holy, holy is the Son. Holy, holy, holy is the Spirit. In his book, The Great Doctrines of the Bible, William Evans writes these words. He said, if there is any difference in importance in the attributes of God, he said that of his holiness seems to occupy first place. It is to say the least the one attribute which God would have his people remember him by more than any other. In the visions of himself which God granted men in the scriptures, the thing that stood out most prominent was his divine holiness. Some 30 times the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jehovah as the Holy One. It is just this vision of God that we need today when the tendency to deny the reality of the awfulness of sin is so prevalent. He concludes, light views of God and his holiness will produce light views of sin. 
and the atonement. I like what Kyle and Dalich wrote, that God is in himself the Holy One, separate one, beyond and above this world. He is true light, spotless purity. He is the perfect one. Scripture says in verse 4 that the posts of the door were shaken. Every time the heavenly host would respond in antiphonal song, the posts of the door trembled. The place was seized with a reverential awe. If this is the response of unfallen and unredeemed creatures, then what should our response be who have fallen but have been redeemed through the precious blood of Jesus Christ? Not only will we see things that we've never seen before and hear things that we've never heard before, but we'll say things that we've never said before. In verse 5, we read these words. Isaiah said, Woe is me. For I am undone. This can literally be translated, I'm disintegrating. I'm falling apart. I'm going to pieces. I'm cut off. And Isaiah responds, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw something he had never seen before. He saw God's holiness and he saw his own sinfulness. The word awesome has been used for a lot of things. I don't know that the word awesome is used much anymore, but I remember a day to where the word awesome was used quite frequently. The word awesome has been used for sports figures. It's been used to describe cars, events. The word awesome has even been used to describe boyfriends and girlfriends. But personally, I believe the word awesome should be exclusively used for God. This is why. Because of what the name or the word rather awesome means. It's a feeling of fearful or profound respect or wonder inspired by greatness, grandeur, or superiority. And it suggests an immobilizing effect. Isaiah was awestruck in the presence of God. He was immobilized. He was stopped dead in his tracks as he saw the greatness, the grandeur, and the glory of holy God. When was the last time that you and I were truly awestruck by the magnitude of his majesty, his glory, and his holiness? as we see him, as we read of him through the scriptures. No wonder David wrote in Psalm 4.4, Stand in awe and sin not. The holiness of God serves as a preventive 
a, as a preventative of sin as well as a purifier of sin. Such awe and such reverence, such godly fear is also a New Testament principle as well. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer said, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. When Moses saw God's holiness, he trembled and he dared not look. When Job saw God's holiness, he said, Wherefore, I abhor myself, I repent in dust and ashes. When Peter saw God's holiness, he said to the Lord, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Saul of Tarsus saw and heard the holy, exalted Christ, the scripture in the book of Acts, as Luke writes, describes the fact that Saul fell to the ground. He trembled. He was astonished and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? When the apostle John saw the exalted Christ, he wrote, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. It is true what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote many, many years ago, and I quote, he said, so then we start with God. We turn from all the quarreling and disputes and the problems, and we look into his face. We begin to see him in all his holiness and all mightiness and in all the power of his creatorship, and we humble ourselves before him. He is worthy to be praised, and he alone and knowing that in his sight even nations are but as grasshoppers and like the small dust of the balance, we soon begin to realize that all the pomp and glory of man becomes as nothing when we truly see God. And in addition, we begin to see ourselves as sinners. We see ourselves as such vile sinners that we forget that we ever had a right we certainly see that we have no rights at all before God. We are wretched, foul, and ugly. That is not only the teaching of Scripture. It's amply confirmed by the experiences of all who have come to know God in any real sense. He said no man can really come into the presence of God without saying, I am unclean. We're all unclean. The knowledge of God humbles us to the dust. And in that position, you do not think about your rights or your dignity. You have no need any longer to protect yourselves because you feel you are unworthy of everything. It's just like the tax collector who saw his sinfulness and his unworthiness in light of God's holiness, he stood afar off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, an awareness of God's awesome holiness will create within us an awareness of our awful sinfulness. 
John MacArthur writes, and I quote, he said, the true spirit of worship is an overwhelming sense of unholiness in the presence of holy God. As the throne represents judgment in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, and I'm so glad for this, the altar represents grace and forgiveness in verses 6 and 7. As the throne represents God as sovereign in verse 1, the altar represents God as Savior, verses 6 and 7. To put it another way, the king on the throne of Isaiah 6 became the crucified on the cross in Isaiah 53. The Lord of Isaiah 6 is the Lamb. In Isaiah 53. In John's gospel, in John 12, 41, John reminds us that it was Jesus. It was Jesus who Isaiah saw. It was the pre-incarnate Christ. It was a Christophany, the appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. That's who Isaiah saw. He was the Lord on the throne, but he's also the lamb in Isaiah 53. Aren't you glad of that? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Right now, could we confess to the Lord? I mean, truly confess to the Lord? I am not trying to do the work of the Holy Spirit, only he can do that. And as Isaiah did, just right now, just for a moment, just briefly, just simply say to the Lord, I'm a man or I'm a woman of unclean. And let's fill in the blank. It might be I'm a man or a woman of unclean thoughts or I'm a man or a woman of unclean attitudes or motives. I don't know what it is. I don't know your heart. But right now, right now as I continue to preach, right now, God, you know my heart. He knows our hearts better than we do. He knows our hearts better than we do. And so that we may just be open and honest and transparent with the Lord as Isaiah was. And that's how God wants his children to be, just open and honest and transparent before him. In verse 8, we also discover, once again, we'll hear things we've never heard before. Isaiah writes, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then again in verse 8, we'll say things we've never said before. Isaiah responded with, Then said I, Here am I, send me. You see, when, when God truly becomes 
real to his people. They will freely offer themselves and their possessions. What's Isaiah doing? He's giving himself away to the Lord. To be used of the Lord, to be a prophet of the Lord, to be the Lord's representative, the Lord's spokesman. It's the natural response to his lordship. He's Adonai. It's, it's, it's a natural response to his lord to, to, to his lordship and his ownership. He's Adonai. It, it's a proper response to his holiness. It's a humble response to his grace. Someone once said that when a believer has a true experience with the Lord, it does not make him proud. Rather, it humbles and breaks him. And that's exactly what happened in Isaiah's life. No wonder David wrote, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. Isaiah was painfully made aware of his own sin, and it broke him. It broke him. And in turn, what does the Lord do? He cleanses him, and he commissions him. And we too tonight have encountered the Lord through his word. We, we've heard from the Lord through his word we, we've seen the Lord through his word. And now what do we see in our own lives? What will we say? What will we do? Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as all, always, we thank you, Father, for your word we thank you, Father, that you have preserved it down through the ages. God, it's just absolutely amazing how that this book has been preserved for us to where we can open it tonight and we can look at it and read it together. And understand that, Father, men and women have literally laid down their lives so that we might have this, have your word as we do today. And so, God, I pray, Father, that that our hearts will have already been bent toward you and attentive toward you. And again, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know the things in our lives that we need to be, be brought to you for cleansing and things in our lives that need to be brought under your authority, under your rule, under your lordship, under your ownership. For we have been bought with a price. We now belong to you. And so, God, I pray, Father, in my own heart, anew and afresh, I bring myself to you. May each and every one of us here this evening, anew and afresh, as your people bring ourselves to you, avail ourselves to you. You are our Savior. You are our Redeemer. You're our master, our ruler, our Lord. And God, because of your grace, you have saved us and redeemed us. And God, you are worthy of all our praise, whatever that may look like on this side of heaven.
You're worthy of our praise. You are worthy. And we bow before you in praise, in honor, and adoration. For it is in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.